another series. And, uh, of course, we're going into the summer months and maybe a little hit and miss here and there. Uh, of course, all of you know that camp meeting is next week, but we will have Wednesday night service here uh, during camp meeting. And um, But as a follow-up from the series that we did on when offenses come, being hurt or causing hurt, I want to launch in, and I'd like to use the Beatitudes. Jesus gave the Beatitudes beginning with his Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to use the Beatitudes as a basis for this Bible study series that we'd like to do on Wednesday night, and I'm just going to simply call it to be made whole. I know that when people are hurt, um, the healing process oftentimes can be difficult, and a lot of times people don't complete it. Uh, we do this oftentimes even with our physical bodies. You'll go to the doctor and you'll have something done and then you need to go back for follow-up visits and we get to feeling pretty good and we don't finish the follow-up visit. And um, sometimes it's okay to do that and sometimes it's not so okay to do that. Um, but I, I want to do some, some follow-up work. Uh, there's a, a good portion of our church that has... Uh, I would suppose everybody at, at Grace Church has been hurt or has caused hurt, or both, at one time or another in your life, and it could be something that happened years ago that you never completely got past it. Um, it could be something that happened last week and you're struggling with it right now. And most hurts come from either family-related events or church-related events. And I will be honest to you tonight and say that even church-related events can involve the pastor, it can involve pastor staff, it can involve leadership. Uh, nobody around here claims to be perfect. Um, we all do things that are hurtful. Uh, I hope none of that is intentional. I think it's mostly inadvertent. But nonetheless, people are hurt. Well, I think sometimes when people are hurt that you, you, you accept the hurt and you learn how to cope with it. Um, people learn how to cope with physical injury. They learn how to cope with a divorce. They, they learn how to cope with their children cutting them off. And, and, and we've worked with people through these situations. And rather than choosing to be completely healed and being normal again, I use that word very loosely because in our society today it's hard to even know what normal is. But where you just feel really good about yourself, you feel good about your, your, yourself, you feel good about your relationship with God, you feel good with your relationship with your church, your family, that's pretty much encapsulates normal. You're happy with your job, what have you. Um, I think it's sad for people to have experienced a very difficult crisis, whether it be family or church-related, and they just learn how to cope with it rather than following through with a, a process that requires accountability and responsibility instead of following through with it and becoming whole or normal again. So I want to make an effort over the next number of Wednesday nights. I don't know how many you'll take. We'll see how it goes. If this don't go, do good tonight, we'll call it quits tonight and move on to something else. But 
I don't think that's going to happen. But I really want to, I really have a very passionate and sincere desire to see everyone who attends Grace Church, either as a person or a family, to be whole, to be complete, to not just learn how to cope with things and what have you. And I, I believe in the little prayer that we've all heard. God grant me the courage to change the things I can um, and the wisdom to know the difference. I left part of that out, but um, I hope we've, we've just not settled for a lifestyle, for an attitude, for a perspective when the Bible offers us so much more if we're willing to go a little bit further to pursue our recovery from our hurts and our disappointments. So with that being said, tonight I want to read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I find it interesting in the Beatitudes is that Jesus takes all the lack and want in the lives of people and say you're blessed if you have if you have that it's a blessing to have that because it gives God a big wide open door into your life that's what it does and he'll walk in if you'll let him but I want to say to you tonight and I want everybody to understand we want to come up here and be prayed for and God take care of everything just like that sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't he needs for you to go through a process And that process will teach you how to trust again, how to love again, how to have faith again. And if we're healed instantly, we don't get all of that. We just go on a merry way and kind of forget about it. So it's important to realize that there's a process involved here for all of us to commit to. If you want to be whole in your relationship with God, your marriage, parenting, church, what have you. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One translation said, Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. <clears throat> I want to begin tonight, and I'm going to give you a number of principles. And if you bring the same notepad to church every time, you can write all these down as we go along. And I'll, I'll throw maybe one or two out per lesson. But our first principle that we're going to talk about tonight is if you want to be made whole, there's one thing you have to realize, and that's that you're not God. You're not God. You don't have nearly the control over your life that you think you do. And I'm going to point that out in just a moment. The Bible clearly states that all have sinned. It's in my nature to sin. And it's in your nature to sin. None of us is untainted when it comes to sin. So because of sin, we all hurt ourselves. We hurt other people. And because of sin, other people hurt us. This means that each of us needs, number one, repentance. I want to say to you tonight... Repentance is one of the greatest conduits that you have in your relationship with God. God will never turn down. He'll never turn aside. He will never ignore a truly repentant person. The broken and contrite, David said, O God, thou will not despise. So repentance 
is one of your greatest friends. Don't ever forget that. If you ever reach the point where you don't want to or you don't feel like you need to, is when you need to. <clears throat> I hope everybody understands that. So this means that each of us needs repentance in our life. Paul said, I die daily, and that's, that's what he meant. He repents every day. And that is, that's a reflection of his desire, and it should be a reflection of ours to always be right with God first. If you're right with God first, you can be right with other people. But if you're not right with God, the difficult people are going to be more difficult to deal with. So repentance is incredible. It's valuable. It is important. It's necessary in our relationship with God. But the second thing is recovery or being made whole or complete. The Bible said you are complete in Him. The Bible talks about the renewing of your mind. There's a lot of directions we could go here, but I'll stay with my notes. But God means that each of us needs repentance, and we all need recovery from something in order to live our lives the way God intended. So it's imperative tonight that we realize that He's God and we're not when it comes to our life. I know it's a very common statement, especially in in most denominations, is to let to accept Christ and let Him be the Lord of your life. Not everybody has that want to. Everybody wants the Lord, but they don't want Him to be the Lord over their life. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Nobody wants to submit. It's in human nature to resist that. But I believe it's imperative tonight to realize that I'm not God. And I admit, I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. I think it's imperative that all of us admit that. I don't care who you are tonight. You cannot dictate the order of your life and your attitude and, and all that life encompasses perfectly. Notice the Old Testament illustration that I'll share with you tonight, and I'll build this lesson on it. When Israel returned from captivity in the Old Testament, their first project was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This is when they came back from Babylonian captivity towards the end of the Old Testament. That part of their story in rebuilding the temple is found in the book of Ezra. He records this rebuilding project, which took about 20 years. And it symbolized their restored relationship with God. They were back in their homeland. They were restoring their temple. And to them, God was wonderful. And this is what this symbolizes. But 70 years, 70 years after the completion of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem still lay in ruin. They got their temple built, but they didn't rebuild the walls. And that's important to note that. And this is where Nehemiah comes in. You remember that he was very unhappy. He was very sad in the presence of the king. And the king said, what's the matter with you? And he said, my people are in my land and they're not doing good. Well, it'd be easy to say, well, they've been going to church for the past 70 years. They've had a relationship with God 
for 70 years. Think about that. How long have you been attending church? How long have you been serving God? The temple was right, but the walls were still torn down. So here is a people who've been able to reestablish repentance. They came back to God. They came back to their homeland. They came back to the temple. They came back to God. They were able to reestablish the principle of repentance. But they were never able to reestablish recovery, which means building their walls back, getting back to normal, where they could defend themselves and protect themselves, where they could provide for their people and what have you. They had temple worship down pat. But that place that God wanted them to be as they were in the days of Solomon, that didn't exist. Y'all see what I'm saying now? It's impossible, or it is possible, to restore your relationship with God and be saved, but still not to be complete. So as such, they were a type of those in the church who are saved but still broken. I almost titled that ser- this series that, Saved But Broken. They have been fouled up by an accident. They've been dented in by disobedience, smashed by sin, ruined by rebellion, and injured through ignorance. They may well have been forgiven for the foolish seeds of sin sown B.C., before Christ. But the harvest of, of sowing to the flesh doesn't disappear overnight. There's still rubble around our lives. Yes, salvation does solve the problem of our relationship with God. No, it does not dissolve all the problems in our lives. So life in Christ opens a doorway to the solution. Reestablishing that relationship with God opens a doorway to the solution. But only by walking through that door... And pursuing that way will those problems finally reach some kind of resolution. This is where I talked about earlier. If you want to go through this process, it's going to require discipline, accountability, and responsibility. If you're willing to do that, it's an awesome journey. And it'll take you to a great place in your relationship with God, your family, and your church. But if you don't make that journey, you'll always be awkward You'll always be wobbly on your feet, if you will, in your relationship with God. Folks, I see this all the time with church people. And I'll concur with Merrill's remarks tonight that church does start on Sunday at 11. And we also have church here at 7.30 on Wednesday night. It's important to participate in all of it. If you're going to get somewhat of a, a diet, a steady, consistent diet, and there's people that choose not to come on Sunday morning and Wednesday night because it's not convenient. And they don't want to. And they struggle in their relationship with God in various areas of of their life. So I want to say to you tonight, it's imperative, if you want to be whole, that there's a process you have to follow. It's the same, I'm not teaching something foreign tonight. Uh, There may be folks that that go to to, to therapists and doctors and, and what have you. If you don't continue that process... Going now and then hit and miss really isn't going to do you a lot of good. I find oftentimes people, the biggest thing they want out of their relationship with God is to have someone that they can dump all their stuff on and then walk away and leave it. 
But God wants to heal people. He wants people to recover. He wants the people to be well. He wants you to be whole. That's the whole point of a relationship with God is to make you whole. When Jesus cleansed lepers, he didn't do it halfway. When Jesus healed the blind man, he didn't just restore his sight. He restored his brain. He healed his brain so he could perceive distance and peripheral vision and all that stuff. When he healed the lame man, he jumped up and not walked on all of his life and just started running around. That came with the miracle. He, did, he went all the way with it. <clears throat> That's what he wants to do in our lives. And all of us have undoubtedly heard the expression that time heals all wounds. No, it don't. It's not true. As a matter of fact, depending on the nature of the wound, time can make it much worse. You get a splinter in your finger and let it go. Just let it go. See where you are in about six months. See what your finger looks like in about six months. It's a little old bitty thing, buddy. But it can sure wreak havoc in your body. Yes, it can when it gets infected. Oh, yes. Y'all understand the point? I think uh, Kelly Adams understands that point pretty well. She had a little mishap and poked her hand with a pencil and ended up in the hospital over it. Time don't heal wounds. It will some, but it won't heal all of them. And we have to be able to discern that. Wounds that are left untended fester, and they spread infection throughout the entire body, and the time only extends the pain. The time only extends the pain. It don't heal, it just makes it worse. It extends it. If the problem isn't dealt with, we need recovery, or we just keep repeating the same cycle. One day a father was trying to take an afternoon nap, and his little boy kept bugging him. And he said, Daddy, I'm bored. So his father, trying to make up a game, found a picture of a globe in the newspaper. He ripped it up in about 50 pieces and said, said, Son, this is a puzzle. I want you to put it all back together. So the dad laid down to finish his nap, thinking it would take the boy at least an hour or two, and he could get some sleep. In about 15 minutes, the boy was done. He said, Daddy, I've got it all done. Got it all put together. The dad couldn't believe it. He knew his son didn't know all the positions of the nations. and So the dad asked, how did you do that? And the son replied, said, well, Dad, there was a picture of a person on the back of that page, and when I got my person put together, the world looked just fine. There's an awesome, awesome message. It's amazing how good the world can look when we're whole, when we're where, we're, where we need to be. So isn't it amazing how much better the world looks when your person is put together in the right way. So we're going to teach about how to handle the hurts, the habits, the hang-ups, all that mess-up stuff. Isaiah said in Isaiah 57, verse 18, I've seen his ways and will I and will heal him. He said, I've seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. So God has a desire and a strong intention to heal. But I want you to know this particular verse contains four parts of the recovery of the being made whole process that he wants to accomplish in your life. Number one, if you've been hurt, God wants to heal you. If you're confused, God wants to lead you. If you feel you can't change, God wants to help you. If you feel no one understands, God wants to comfort you. Those four components is found in that one verse in Isaiah 57, 18. The fact is, 
Life is rough. Life can throw some curveballs at you. We live in an imperfect world. We're hurt by other people. We hurt ourselves, and we hurt other people. This is for everybody. Everyone in this room needs recovery on some level or another, unless that is you've lived a perfect life. But if you haven't lived a perfect life, and if you've ever been hurt, or if you've ever had a hang-up or a habit that you need to get rid of, then you're in need of recovery tonight. You're in need of being made whole. I wish, I wish people would get their head around this. At least try. At least try. The good news is this. Regardless of the problem you need recovery from, whether it's emotional, financial, relational, spiritual, or anything else, the steps to recovery are always the same. You know, many people are familiar with the classic 12-step recovery program of AA. Alcoholics Anonymous. I understand there's over 500,000 groups of AA. Some 20 million Americans attend AA on some level in America every week. And it has helped a lot of people, and I'll give them credit for that. But did you know that the Bible is the ultimate guide to the principles of recovery? It's the ultimate guide. The problem we struggle with is we don't want to do what the Bible says. That's the problem in a nutshell. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he began stating eight ways to be happy. Eight ways to be whole. Eight ways to be complete. We call it the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. From a conventional viewpoint, most of these statements don't make sense. In fact, they sound like contradictions. But when you fully understand what Jesus is saying, you'll realize that these eight principles are God's road to recovery, to wholeness, to spiritual growth, and to Christian maturity. So principle number one again is to realize I am not God. I wonder if we could all say that together tonight. I am not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. And my life is unmanageable. And the first step in my journey to wholeness is to realize that I'm not God and I admit that I am powerless to totally control my tendency to do wrong things. I must admit that my life with me in control is unmanageable. You say, I manage my life, Pastor. Well, let's see. Let's take a little test. Do you ever stay up late when you know you need to be sleeping? Fail number one. Do you ever eat more calories than your body needs? Fail number two. Do you ever feel like you should exercise and you do not? Fail number three. Do you ever know the right thing to do but you don't do it? Fail number four. How are we doing tonight playing God over our life? Anybody feeling good about this so far? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Do you ever know something is wrong, but you go ahead and do it anyway? Have you ever known you should be unselfish, but you acted selfish instead? Have you ever tried to control some person or situation by your words, actions, moods? And have found that it only makes things work. So how do we do when we play God over our life? 
Just this, just this little simple questionnaire here. It, it kind of answered the question, doesn't it? We're not nearly as much as in control of our life as we think we are. I need Jesus every day. I can't think of a minute of the day that I don't need Jesus. I need Jesus when I'm sleeping. So if your answer to all of these questions is, yes, I have problems with all of these things, and I say, welcome to the human race. We're all in need of recovery from something, and we can't manage our life nearly as well as we think we do. So how do you break out of that? And I'm going to mention a word here in just a moment that you're not going to like, and I don't like it either. It's been used and beat up and slung around our society now for years, but it's still applicable. It is still applicable. The first step in recovery to being made whole is the first thing we have to get past is denial. Everybody say denial. Denial is the first thing that keeps us from moving to a place of wholeness. We say, as we eat that third piece of cake, I'm in control of my diet. Liar, liar, pants on fire. When the spouse comes in and says, Honey, you going to go walk around the neighborhood tonight for your exercise? No, I'm tired, but I'm in control. And the list goes on and on and on. Denial keeps us moving from moving into recovery. We excuse ourselves and we accuse others. We excuse or justify our stuff, but we accuse and blame everyone else. That sound familiar? Boy, isn't that applicable? Y'all are staring at me. You won't move that head for nothing. I don't get this or this, nothing. It's like your head is bolted. <clears throat> Have you seen this lost and found ad in the newspaper? Brother Marilyn and I have chuckled about this in the past. Lost dog. Three legs, blind in one eye, missing right ear, tail broken, answers to the name of Lucky. <clears throat> That's what I call denial right there, buddy. So what's the antidote to denial? What makes me finally face up to my problems? God has an antidote for denial. And it's, for most of us, it's called pain. God will allow some degree of suffering in our life to make us face the reality that we're not God and He is. We rarely change when we see the light. But we do change when we start feeling the heat. And there's people in this building tonight that said, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. But am I changing? No. Until something bad happens. When something happens to one of your kids, or your spouse walks out on you, or you lose your job, then all of a sudden Jesus gets kind of pretty. It's amazing how that works, doesn't it? Am I telling you the truth? So he... Oftentimes, we'll turn up the heat. God uses three denial busters to get our attention. This is how he will burst us out of our mindset and perspective of denial. There ain't nothing wrong in my life. There ain't nothing wrong in my marriage. There ain't nothing wrong with my kids. There ain't nothing wrong with me. I'm fine, man. I'm fine. I've had more people tell me that than you can imagine. And I'm sitting there thinking, dear me, I would hate to know what your definition of the word fine is. Because if you're fine, I'd hate to be bad off. 
I'm trying to help some folks here tonight, and if you'd, if you'd just try, if you'd at least try. Another word for denial is delusion. But there's three denial busters that God can use to get your attention. Number one is crisis. And this usually comes through illness. It comes through excessive stress, the loss of a job, or you can't work enough jobs. You never have enough money. Your marriage is falling apart. You and your spouse virtually hate each other. You tolerate each other. You cohabitate. Your health is, is horrible. But I'm doing fine. So that's the number one thing that God will bring to your life. So listen, everybody, listen. If you step into a time of crises in your life, I just had a great conversation with Dave Bunch before church tonight. And he firmly believes, as well as I do, that God is taking them through a process here and he's staying as countable as he can and sensitive as he can. I thank God for this past Sunday morning service. He said to me, and I didn't catch it, but he said God spoke to him on three different levels Sunday morning. And uh, just affirming that I've got this. I may not take it off your plate, but I've got it. And I'm going to empower you to get through it and so on. Crises. So when you enter into a, a time of crises in your life, get on your knees before God and say, God, what are you trying to say to me? I've often prayed. I've shared this with Brother Marilyn. I've talked about it for a, a number of years, a number of times. That God, if there's something you want me to do or something you want me to be, would you give me a shot at it before all this stuff starts and just see if I can pull it off? I'm sincere making that statement. I've prayed it. God, don't drag me through a bunch of stuff to get my attention. Let me listen right now. And if we could learn that, we could save ourselves some trouble. But the second thing that God will allow to happen in our lives, again, I want to say, and I've mentioned it several times, and I want everybody to hear it, God determines what we go through, but we determine... So the second thing God brings into our life is confrontation. If someone cares enough to say, you're blowing it, man. If you'd start being a little bit better in your marriage, it would be better. If you'd be a better husband or a better wife, if people keep telling you that, you need to listen. You know, you're about to lose your family. Or if you keep doing what you're doing, you'll lose your health. Or if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to lose your job. If enough people keep telling you that, you know, there's, there's wisdom in the multitude of counsel. We need to listen to that. We developed a posture, everybody's wrong and I'm right. You're, you're headed down a dead-end street. Y'all give me some latitude here tonight, but I'm bearing my soul. There's an old saying in Texas. If one person calls you a horse's, I'm going to use the word patootie. Y'all know what that means? If one person calls you that, ignore it. If two people call you that, then you need to go look in a mirror. If three people call you that, you need to go buy you a saddle. You need to listen. There's folks sitting here tonight. You've been told things about your life over and over and over by more people than me. And you just keep acting the same. And wonder why your marriage is horrible and your family's horrible and blah, blah, blah. 
Go look in the mirror, man. It ain't all them, it ain't all me. If there's enough people that keeps telling you that, you need to listen. Pain is like a fire alarm. Ignore it at your own peril. Crises and confrontation is like a fire alarm. You ignore these things at your own parable. The third thing that God will allow is catastrophe. Hopefully God won't have to let the bottom fall out of everything before we back up and listen to Him. What sometimes happens is that God steps back and lets us just simply reap what we've sown. Feeling the full impact of our own misguided decisions. Still want to play God? Still want to be God? Romans chapter 7, For that which I do not, for that which I do, I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. Even then I do that which I would not. I consent unto the law that is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. The first step to being whole. I hope everybody's listening. The first step to being whole, to recovering from hurts and, and just sinful times in your life. You know, when you sown your wild oats and so on. The, the first step to recovery is to understand the cause of the problem. And oftentimes it's not everybody else. And I want to tell you what, even if it is everybody else, you can't control what they do either. But the first step to recovery is to understand the cause of the problem. We also need to understand the consequences of the problem. And finally, we need to discover the cure for the problem. The cause, the consequence, and the cure. The Bible has a word for this tendency towards self-defeating behavior. And it's made up of only three letters, and it's called sin. My sinful nature, my sinful nature gets me in all kinds of problems. I do things that aren't good for me, and I don't do the things that are good for me. I respond the wrong way when I'm hurt, and it just increases the hurt rather than lessening the hurt. I try to fix problems, and often when I finish, they are worse than when I started. Does anybody relate to that? Can you be honest? The wise man said in Proverbs 14, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Behind all of my problems is this sinful attitude that I want to be God. I want to be God. I want to decide what's right and what's wrong. I've heard parents leave that decision up to their kids. I've heard parents say it. I'm not going to teach them what's right and wrong. I'll let them decide when they're an adult. What kind of... I want to call the shots and make my own rules. I had somebody say one time, I'd love to come to your church, but y'all have too many rules. I don't. I didn't make them up. I'm going to tell you what, there's a lot of security in rules. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of security in parameters. When you know what's wrong and you know what's right, you can behave a whole lot better if you know that. Yes, you do. 
I want to put myself at the center of the universe. I want to be my own boss and live my own way. If it feels good, then that's what I want to do. I don't want anyone else telling me what to do with my life or how I should act. That's called playing God. I don't want to listen to anybody else. I don't care what my spouse has to say. I don't care what my kids have to say. I don't care what the pastor has to say. I'm going to do it my way. Go ahead. Trying to save you from learning the hard way. But what you're really saying is I want to control. And the more insecure you are, the more driven to control you are. You want to control yourself, control other people. You want to control your environment. And you're driven to do this. And it's called playing God. And, and it's mankind's oldest problem. Control is, is the issue. So let me tell you how we play God. Bring this home a little closer home. Is number one, we try to control our own image. We want to control how people perceive us. We want to control what other people think of us. We don't want them to know what we are really like. So we wear masks and we deny our feelings, hoping to impress people. And why am I afraid to tell you who I am? Because if I'm honest and you don't like me, then me is all I've got. So that's why we don't want the real me to come out. I want to tell you here at Grace Church, we, we have some very outspoken people. And you don't guess at what they're thinking, good or bad. You don't guess at what they're thinking. And I love it. I'd far rather you tell me what's on your mind. You can be nice about it. You don't have to be mean. But you can be nice and tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you're thinking. Don't, don't hypocrite around and say, well, I just want the pastor to think, hey, I'm cool. I've got everything in control and all that kind of stuff. When I know better. Brother, just be honest. Just be transparent. But we try to control our image. That's one way that we play God. Another way we try to play God is we want to control other people. And we'll do whatever it takes to control other people. We can be demanding. We can be manipulative. But we want to control other people. Parents try to control their kids. Kids try to control the parents. Wives try to control husbands. Husbands try to control their wives. And friends try to control their friends. And all, all, all their... All these things don't work. Is anybody working in an environment where there's office politics and somebody's trying to look over your shoulder and control what you do and what have you? Let's take it to a worldview. Does other countries try to control other countries? Something inherent in human nature that wants to do that. We want to control ourselves. We want to control other people. The third thing we do that's probably more relevant is we want to control our own problems. I had a man tell me one time, that I don't pray that much and I don't talk to God that much. I'm not going to bother him with my problems. <clears throat> and we're good at this. We use phrases like, I can handle it. I can handle it, Pastor. Tell your spouse, I got this. I can handle it. Anybody ever been there and done that? Give me that blank stare all you want. I know better. <clears throat> Amen. I can handle it. Or, nah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really that big of a problem. I'm fine. I don't need any help. I can take care of this anytime I'm ready. I'll work it out on my own. That's just somebody trying to play God. But the more you try to fix the problem yourself, what usually happens? The worse it gets. I know people, they will not bring God into their marriage. They will not bring their, their marriage into a biblical, applicable setting. They won't do it. And buddy, they're continually trying to figure it out. 
take a sip of water to see if I need to spend some time on that point or just keep moving. I'll save you a lot of trouble. If you'll bring your marriage, a husband be what he's supposed to be and the wife be what she's supposed to be and put God right in the middle of it, you'll be amazed. And how much better your marriage could be. The fourth thing we try to do is control our pain. Now, this is one thing I do appreciate people lying about when we get to Grace Church on Sunday morning. I've quit asking people, how you doing? I just say, it's good to see you. I asked somebody a very simple question the other day via text. I'm not going to be more specific than that. I just needed just a little bit of information that was not even relevant to them and got the information I asked for in a long paragraph on everything that's wrong. I didn't ask for none of that. I didn't ask you how you were doing. If I don't ask, don't volunteer. If I want to know, I'll ask you. I'm going to tell you, man, we have, we have folks that, whew, and ain't nothing I can do. I don't know what to do but pray. You won't listen to the Bible study. You won't apply it. You won't live that. So I don't know what else to do. We try to control our pain. How, have you ever thought how much time you spend running from pain, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual? This is what people do, and it's common, and even therapists and, and, and psychiatrists and psychologists will tell you this. They try, people try to avoid pain. They try to deny it. They try to escape it. They'll try to reduce it. But here's a big thing is they try to postpone it. People do this with grief, and it's possible to do it. You can block grief out of your life, but at some point you're gonna, it's going to catch you in a weak moment. You're going to go through it. You will go through it. And I suggest when people lose a loved one or something serious happens in your life, you're better off to face the grief process. Go right on through it. You're going to have moments where you won't be isolated. You're going to have moments where you get angry. You're going to have all of that. I think there's about seven processes to grief. Just go on through it and get it over with. Do I sound kind of calloused or whatever? I don't mean to. It's just, I'm just being real. <clears throat> but people will postpone it. People try to postpone their pain in, in many, many ways. We'll postpone our pain by eating, overeating, or not eating at all. Sister Burford get upset sometimes and say, you want to go eat? No, I, I can't eat nothing right now. I'm like, give me anything, man. Just, I'll eat anything. I'll, I'll eat a, a song book. Uh, she don't eat and I eat. And the more I'm upset, the more I eat. It just, I'm one of these comfort food people. <clears throat> people will get drunk. They'll smoke. I need a cigarette. I need some drugs. Or I need to get in a relationship with somebody. Or I need to get out of a relationship with somebody. And they treat this stuff as a way to cure their pain. And it doesn't. It just defers it. It just You kick the bucket a little further down the street. Or the way people try to control their pain is they become abusive. Either to themselves or others. Because they're hurting. Or they become angry. Incredibly critical or judgmental. But they'll get real depressed. This is how people try to hide or mask their pain. So there's many ways that people try 
to control their pain. And this is, again, ways that we play God. We won't bring this stuff to Jesus and ask him to help us with it. We won't handle it ourselves. So what are the consequences? I have about seven minutes. What are the consequences of playing God? Number one is fear. You'll be one of the most fearful people on the planet. The consequences of playing God, number one, is fear. When I try to control everything, I get afraid. Afraid that somebody's going to find out who I really am. They're going to find out that I'm being fake. They really don't have it all together, and they'll know that I'm not perfect. Get afraid. So I don't want to let anybody get real close to me because they'll find out I'm really scared on the inside and I look weak. And so we fake it and fill our lives with fear, afraid that someone's going to reject us or not like us because they don't really know what we're like and they don't really know who we are. We think they only like an image of me. If they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't like me. I'm going to be honest with you folks quickly, and I'm running out of time, but when I first went into ministry, I was just bottled up with fear. It was a lot of insecurity, but more than that, it was just an inferiority complex. <clears throat> and I would just try to act like everything was in control, and our church was the most awesome church on the planet, the biggest church on the planet, and didn't have any problems, whatever. I finally reached a point where it's just a whole lot easier and you enjoy life a whole lot more when you just relax and enjoy it and take the good with the bad and the bad with the good and just roll on. So this is my statement to that. If you don't like this right here, it don't get any better. It's just what you see is what you get. I'm not putting on airs for anybody. I want to be me and I want to be very happy being me because God made me like I am. And I want to be very happy with that. And everybody say amen. First thing that cropped up in one of God's conversations with Adam after they sinned. As Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. And I was naked and I hid myself. That's what happens when you try to play God. Adam is a perfect example of that. I was afraid. I heard your voice and I hid and I was naked and I was embarrassed. The second thing the second consequence that comes to us when we try to play God is you get frustrated. Number one, you're fearful. People's going to really know who you are. Number two is frustration. Have you ever seen the carnival game played with a mallet? Y'all ever seen that? You go get that big sledgehammer and you hit that thing that throws that thing up the pole and bing! And if you hit the thing at the top, they give you a little stuffed animal and say thanks. After all that energy and People have spent $28 trying to get that little thing to hit that bell. I really don't care, man. I, I don't, anyway. <clears throat> but that's how you are with life. You slam one thing down and another thing pops up. That's life. We whack one compulsion down and another one pops up. We pack down, pack, whack down one problem and another one pops up. We whack down one conflict and another one pops up. And it's so frustrating because you can't get them all knocked down at the same time. And the frustration you feel is a symptom of a deeper problem that you've never dealt with. And that's the fact that you're not God. You know, there was a, I think it was one of the most awesome statements when we had the uh, autism uh, seminar last Tuesday night, a week ago last night. The lady that conducted that uh, and, and just made a marvelous presentation 
uh, on, on how to handle and just ideas and what have you with people, for people with autistic children. Somebody asked her a question. And as brilliant as she was, she's been to Washington, D.C. numerous times talking to congressmen and different committees of Congress and so on. She's single-handedly has helped get health care laws changed, Medicaid law changed, so people can get some financial help with their autistic kids. Brilliant woman, brilliant. Use words that long. Somebody asked her a question. She looked at the lady and said, I don't know. I don't know. I think sometimes we, we feel like we, we have to perform at such a level in marriage and with our family and the demands on our lives are so incredible. Our jobs, the demands are so incredible. You've got to do this. You've got to know that. Fix this. Do this. Go there. Go here. All of that just keeps pounding, 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 pounding. And after a while, you're, you, you just reach a point of exasperation and frustration. You're like, I can't handle all of this anymore. And I believe God has an ability to help us through those times. And it's okay to say, I don't know. And it's okay to say, I can't. Not to me, but everybody else. I'm teasing. The third thing that happens is fatigue. You just, you just exhaust yourself when you try to just handle life by yourself and without the help of God. It's tiring playing God. Denial takes an incredible amount of energy. We try to hide our pain by keeping busy because we don't like the way we feel. And we, when we slow down, so we run from pain by constantly being on the go with work and hobby and sports and even church. And, and then ask yourself, what is it that I'm really running from? We just fatigue. There is a condition, medical condition, called chronic fatigue syndrome. Just lose your ability to think and to function. And when you reach that point, you're, you're not helping yourself, and you're certainly not helping your family, your marriage, your kids, and what have you. And this is a consequence of playing God. And the fourth thing is failure. When you try to play God, that's one job description you're guaranteed to fail at. You need to be honest and open about your weaknesses, your faults, and your failures. It's okay. In fact, our church needs to be a safe place where real people can talk about real problems and real hurts and real hang-ups and real habits and not be blown away by a judgmental attitude. We are a family of fellow strugglers. There's not a person in this room that has it all together. We don't. We're all weak in different areas, and we need each other. The wise man said, listen... And, and I'm bringing this to a conclusion in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. So basically there's two things that every human being needs to learn. There is a God and you're not him. There is a God and you're not him. I'm going to stop tonight. I, I'm not finished. I may cover the rest of this in our next Wednesday night session, but we, we, we need to realize some things that 
when you start feeling the heat, you need to start looking in the mirror and you need to start making some changes in your life. And there are some things that we need to admit that I'm powerless to change my past. I admit that I'm powerless to control other people. And I admit that I'm powerless to cope with my harmful behaviors. If we can do that, God can bring us so much more further ahead in our relationship with him to make us whole and to make us complete. I want you to be complete. I want to be complete. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. And he just don't ask you. He'll empower you to do it. And everybody said amen. Thank the Lord. So tonight, if you would try, at least try, to give up self-control, to give up trying to rule your life and everybody else's and let God take that spot, you'd be a much happier person and far more content. Let's stand together tonight. Father, we're grateful tonight for the Word of God. It is an amazing blessing in our life. What will we do without you and without it? I'm thankful, God, for the foundation that you've put under our feet. Thankful, God, that we have a resource, that we have a place that we can turn to when our lives are, are less than what they should be. It's not to, to poke condemnation on anybody. It's not to make anybody feel good. It's to give people an answer. It's to lay down the gauntlet. It's to say, if you'll try. God, if we'll take one step, you'll take two. And I pray tonight, God, that we would surrender these parts of our lives that we want to control and dictate, that we feel like we have all the answers, and just throw our hands up to you and say, God, I can't do it no more. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And I'm tired of doing this by myself. I need your help. God, I need your help in my, with myself, with my marriage, my family, my church. I need your help. I pray, God, tonight that you would sweep in on our hearts and minds even as we sleep tonight, help us to understand that you have a process, if we'll commit to it, that would make us much better people, that would be better in every facet of our lives. Talk to us tonight, I pray. Help us to reach for you. Help us to reach out to you, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Good group here tonight. Thank you for being here. So thankful you came. Shake hands and fellowship. Thank the Lord. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday in Jesus' name.